Okay, good morning, everybody. Everyone feeling healthy, prayerfully? <laughs> All good to go? Well, let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father, again, we just want to lift up everyone that was under the weather these past two weeks and uh, just help them recover quickly. And everyone else that's uh, been sick in our body, Lord, we just ask for healing for them. Please bless our time of study this morning. As always, we just ask that you would give us the, the wisdom and the insight that we can understand these things and that we can go out and share your gospel. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so today we're talking about the resurrection. The case for the resurrection. Can you prove that Christ was raised from the dead? Well, I believe you can. That's, that's why I'm standing here today. That was one of my biggest uh, stumbling blocks when I was an atheist. I mean, when you think about it, this whole idea of someone being raised from the dead and coming back bodily is it's crazy talk, right? But how important is the resurrection anyway? You guys ever think about that? Very. It's, it's literally the absolute core of, of Christianity, right? We're coming upon the, the season in which we're celebrating Christ's birth, which of course is equally as important. However, I think the most major holiday that we as Christians celebrate is Resurrection Sunday, uh, the day that Christ was raised from the dead. It alone proves that Jesus was who he says that he was. We are on the verge of, um, I don't know, it, when, when you look at society today, don't, don't you guys feel that we're on the verge of something just awesome as far as, you know, either Christ coming back or a revival or some, something, right? So the importance of the resurrection can't be understated. And, and as far as our urgency, like what Ben preached this morning, to go out and share the gospel, and this is the gospel, right? Without Christ being raised bodily from the dead, we're sunk as Christians. That is the entire core of our faith, and that's where our hope lies. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, then what he says is true, and the salvation that he comes to bring is real. So it's utterly crucial for us to understand that the resurrection did indeed happen. So this talk this morning um, is going to be a summary. I always promise my wife I won't go too deep. It'll be a you know 30,000-mile <laughs> overview on this one, because there's a lot um, written about the resurrection and the case for the resurrection. And for those of you that, that want to go deeper, there are substantial academic works that deal with the case for the resurrection. So we're going to be on a summary today. And like I said, it's been extensively documented. Uh, if you guys ask, I can send out an email, a bibliography of about 10, I think, of my favorite books that deal with the resurrection. Some are kind of simple. Some are, whoa, okay. <laughs> that, that one needs almost a, a PhD to wade through, but we'll get you those lists, okay? So there was this atheistic lawyer a few years back, Frank Morris, and he set out to disprove the resurrection. He studied for about a year and then ended up writing the book. Uh, the first chapter of the book was titled The Book That Refused to Be Written. In the process of Mr. Morris... Uh, studying the resurrection while he was an atheist, he ended up becoming a believer, and he wrote the book, quote, Who Moved the Stone? That's one I'd recommend you guys uh, to get through. It's not terribly complex, but it gives a lot of that historical evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And it actually happened with several other people in history. Same story, right? Who have set out to look at the resurrection and ended up becoming believers. I, being blessed enough to be counted among that list, 
uh, Lee Strobel, amongst others. You guys heard of Lee Strobel. Um, for those that haven't or those that are listening at home, I'll give you a brief synopsis of Lee. Um, Lee was an investigative journalist, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And his wife ended up getting saved, and Lee wasn't. Um, his wife wasn't necessarily really harping on him too much, but it did make life uncomfortable in, in the Strobel married household. So Lee, kind of like me uh, at the time, was really angry at Christianity and Christians and set out to disprove Christianity. Lee doing what he was trained to do as an investigative journalist. Um, he interviewed people, uh, he went to archives, he studied documents, and you know now Lee is, of course, one of the teaching pastors down in California at Saddleback Church, right? Uh, as one of their head apologetics teachers down there. I don't know. We'll have to look at that. Well, it was, support, it was supported by NASA, the Star of Bethlehem. I mean, not that NASA didn't write it, but they said that the, uh, the science behind it definitely supported it. But yeah, we'll, we'll look that one up Thursday. on Thursday. Yeah. yeah, I would encourage you guys. That thing, again, it's a lot of science, right? So it's, it's like NASA scientists, but it's phenomenal when you take a look at it and you can see the actual science of what happened during that time. It's on YouTube. You can watch it anytime. Oh, is it really, Joyce? Yeah. So good. Oh, that's so good. The narrator? Yeah. So again, those. Who was it? Frederick Larson. Frederick Larson did the Star of Bethlehem. Again, those listening at home, Joyce brought up. You can take a look at that on YouTube anytime. Just type in the Star of Bethlehem. Star of Bethlehem. Yeah. So this morning we're going to be following a rather three-point outline. Pretty simple. Um, what is the resurrection? What's it all about? What are the evidences of it? And what are the implications of the resurrection? All right, so what is the resurrection? And I wanna first emphasize that it's not just resuscitation. What do I mean by that? Well, for instance, Lazarus, right? Lazarus died and he was in the tomb for four days and Jesus came to that tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did, he came walking out of that tomb alive in his grave clothes. Lazarus came out completely alive, right? Resuscitated at this point. Presumably Lazarus, however, had his dying to do all over again. <laughs> Picture that idea, right? Imagine that. Lazarus was resuscitated, not brought to a new order of being to never die again as Jesus had been, but he had to go through that all over again. I don't know what his mentality would have been <laughs> at that point, but it had to have been uh, it's something entirely different. So, that's what I mean. But the resurrection is not the same, right, as Lazarus' resuscitation. Because once Christ was raised from the dead, that's it. He completely conquered death. He didn't have to die again, just as Lazarus had to die again. What about the widow's son, right? Do you remember that in Luke chapter 7? That's another example. He was raised from the dead by Jesus, uh, resuscitated to have to die all over again, again at a later time. Yet Jesus, who was raised to a new order of being, never had to die again, and that is what the resurrection is of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.23 says this, that he is, quote, the first fruits from the dead. Okay, did you guys ever think about that statement before? What does it mean when um, the Bible describes Jesus as first fruits or, or, or the first or the, um, any of those, those languages? It's like Jesus was the prototype, right, for uh, resurrection at this time. He's the leader to show us what's going to happen with our bodies during the resurrection. He didn't die again. He ascended into heaven. 
bodily, all of it. It's not mere memory. It's not as if Jesus lives on in our memories, like when a great teacher passes, C.S. Lewis, for example, lives on in our memories. That is not the same with Christ. Of all the great things he had done, but he lives physically. He still lives bodily, Christ does, not just merely in our memories. In South America, if you guys are, are old enough to remember this, there were signs of uh, Che lives. Uh, che was the guerrilla warfare leader, Che um, Guevara, I think. And he didn't live bodily after this, but his message, his influence lived on the future generations. And it's not so with Christ. It is not only Christ's message that lives on, it is him actually bodily. I can't stress that enough. It's the actual person of Christ continuing to live, not just his message and his memory. Is, is that sinking in? Does this make sense, right? It's not a story. It's not merely a story. It is claimed to be history. And there is much about that history that's documented. And I've gone over that in previous talks. We've gone over like the authority of scripture and the inerrancy of scripture. But we'll go over a little bit more. There's some interesting facts about the person of Jesus, the crucifixion and the resurrection that I want to discuss briefly here. Jesus is mentioned by 42 different authors prior to the year 150 AD. 42. Some of those authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Jude, the author of Hebrews, are biblical authors. Yeah, I, I get it. And also 20 early Christian authors are among that list, like early church fathers, Tertullian, those fellas. So there are at least no less than nine secular sources before 150 AD that talk about the life and times of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion is mentioned in no less than five extra-biblical sources. It is a historical event. It actually happened. John Dominic Crossan from the Jesus Seminar. Anyone ever come across that, the Jesus Seminar? It is not an evangelistic, uh, friendly uh, group of folks, okay? These are, these are atheists. These are highly, highly skeptics. The Jesus Seminar was done nothing more basically to mock Christians, to mock the Gospels, and just, you know, kind of expose the fraud for what it is, is what the Jesus Seminar was. But anyways, John Dominic Cross, one of the lead guys uh, from the Jesus Seminar, about the crucifixion, he said this, quote, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can be. That was one of the biggest doubters of the resurrection of Christ. You guys have heard this before too, but I'll say it again. C.S. Lewis said, quote, if these things are true, then faith in Christ is of infinite importance. If they are not true, it's of no importance except as a cultural artifact and psychological phenomenon. But the one thing it cannot be is of moderate importance. What, do, what does Lewis mean by that saying? Well, you have the resurrection of Christ, and either it's of infinite importance because it determines where you spend eternity, or it's of no importance at all, and it's complete hogwash, but it can't be middle of the road. You got to make a decision one way or the other. You can't be like, ah, if it's true for you, that's fine. No, you have to either hate it or love it, is what Lewis is saying. And also Christ says that later on in Revelation, if you guys remember, talking to the church of Laodicea, same idea. I do believe the resurrection is true, absolutely. And I've just dealt a little bit with the historicity of Jesus and that he was indeed crucified. So what are the evidences, some of them, of the resurrection? So most scholars, historical scholars, if they're, if they're true to their craft, whether they be evangelical, atheistic, or merely skeptical, agree that Jesus was indeed a literal person, that he was indeed actually crucified. This is most scholars, right? A great majority of them also agree that the tomb was empty. 
Even the atheists and the skeptics agreed that Jesus existed, he was crucified, and the tomb was empty. Now, where we differ is how that tomb got to be empty, right? And that's where the, the different theories come from. But also, a great majority of these scholars acknowledge that the disciples claim to have had an experience with the risen Jesus, that there was some type of encounter of the risen Christ to these disciples. So what we do know is that after the encounter, the disciples were changed. I love the way Mark portrays the disciples before the resurrection. I really, really love that. I had a professor in college, he, he referred to the, the pre-risen Jesus disciples as dumb bunnies, right? Because when, when you think about it, and especially in the stories of Mark, I mean, all these miracles are happening and the disciples just, they are, they're dumb bunnies. Like they have no idea who it is that they're sitting with and they just don't get it until after they had that encounter with the post-resurrected Christ right? Whether, you know, they were the ones that were eating breakfast with them on the side of the lake uh, while fishing or encountering them in the upper room, what have you. They were certainly revolutionized by something. We know that. They absolutely were. Experiences that they had or that they had claimed, this is something that a great mass of scholars agree, whether believer or non-believer, that the disciples indeed were changed after whatever experience that they had. It changed them dramatically. So how do we lay out the evidences? What do we have? Well, we have an empty tomb. Most scholars agree on that, that the tomb was indeed empty. We have appearances of the risen Jesus, and we have the transformation of the early disciples from cowards that hung out and hid in the upper room to very brave and boldened men, ready to completely put everything behind for this new gospel. The gospel, for all intents and purposes, starts in Jerusalem after the death of Jesus in about 50 days after Jesus' death. That's when the, the uh, bodily ascension was. The gospel was first preached in Jerusalem, not very long after the events that had occurred. If there was a body in the tomb where Jesus lay, any person easily could refute that claim of the gospel by going there and pointing, there it is, there's the corpse, there's the body, done, right? If Jesus' body were still in the tomb, it would certainly have been a place that would have been venerated by disciples. What do I mean by venerated, worshiped? It's what we do as humans, right? Even today, don't we do this? Don't we visit graves? Don't we place flowers upon them and such? Any famous person, folks go and, and see their grave or they go and see where they had died. How many of you have traveled to Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas? You guys know what happened there? It's where President Kennedy was shot, right? We three have been there when Sis moved to Texas and we were able to see it. It's creepy, it's cool, it's, it, it's neat to see the grassy knoll and the book uh, depository and all of that, right? But even us as believers, it's not that we were worshiping where President Kennedy was shot, but, but we wanted to go see this place in history, right? Where something great had happened. Not great. You know what I mean? Great as in a great event, not as in a, okay. <laughs> yeah, right? A major event. Major event. There we go. So my point is, if Jesus remained in a tomb, we would have a history of people, his followers that would go to that site and worship him or it, right? We would have that record in history. We don't have that. What we do have is that Jesus was buried in a tomb that belonged to a very wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, with the help of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one who came, uh, if you guys remember the story, came to Jesus at night, and Jesus spoke to him about being born again. He was also the leader of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus was. This is a very important story. You have two men who had a lot at stake to identify with Jesus. And both of them did, right? 
Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had much to lose of being identified with the person of Christ, yet they chose to. That's important. That's very important. Any attempt to invent a story with an empty tomb within 50 days of it occurring would have been refuted. You guys remember um, Watergate, right? It was 14, or no, 12. It was 12 fellas, yeah. 12 fellas in the, in the Watergate conspiracy. It's like two weeks that that lasted, or less than, before they just slowly started caving, you know, pleading to Congress for immunity one after another. It wasn't long. So how do you continue one for 50 days? Also, get this. The Jews admit that the tomb was empty. Did you guys realize that? The Jews, Christianity at this time's biggest um, enemy, admit that the tomb was empty. So have you guys ever paid attention, much attention to Matthew chapter 28? There's some interesting stuff in here. Let me turn here in my Bible. I think this is so cool. Because we see one of the other stories. Okay. Uh, I'll just read from the beginning here. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified, and he is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you in Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met with them and said, Greetings. And they came up to look hold of his feet and worshipped him. Uh, then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go to tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Okay, now here's the interesting part as far as the Romans. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Okay, so the Romans were talking to the Jews. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. The Jews bribed the Roman centurion to tell people that they fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. Okay, let that sink in. The Jews knew that the tomb was empty. Do you guys know what would have happened if that centurion had fallen asleep? Death, absolutely. The Jews bribed them with somehow enough money that the Romans were to tell everyone that the disciples came and stole the body while they slept. Okay, we got two really important groups that realize, Roro, this tomb is empty and we don't know how it happened. We have a very serious problem here. Did you guys ever notice that before? I, I just noticed it this weekend, you know, reading through this again. I'm like, holy cow, they bribed them to tell them that the tomb, uh, that they had fallen asleep and the disciples came in and stole the body. And as we already um, laid out, that you guys know that, that the Roman centurion would have been killed if they would have, have fallen asleep on duty. So how is it, okay, just riddle me this, that disciples can remove that stone, a, and not wake anyone up. This thing was like two tons worth of rock. How could they, the, uh, the disciples carry a body? Any hunters here? You guys ever pack out a deer by yourself? Uh-huh. How fast are you going with that deer? Right? My wife's got, you know, pictures of me wearing a deer backpack. And, I'm, you know, this is not, this is not a swift thing. Um, when we use that term dead weight, it's significant. Yeah. It's very significant. 
Exactly. <laughs> Cut it too. Thanks, Bonnie. That's another 30 pounds out of it, right? So the disciples here somehow rolled or moved this stone by themselves away without waking anybody up. Now they're carrying a body, okay? And they're able to outrun well-trained and armed, basically for today's uh, vernacular, a SEAL team of soldiers is how well the centurions were trained, right? So don't you think if they're running with this body and it was up to this soldier's life that this body remained in this tomb, don't you think we'd have at least a few less disciples or maybe some missing arms and legs at this point? Like something would have happened. Somebody would have gotten some shots off <laughs> if it was, you know, SEAL Team 6 today. But they would have hacked off some limbs or something. Something would have happened. That didn't happen, though. The most puzzling is why would you do this for a lie to later be murdered for it? Think of how the disciples were martyred. The guard admitted indirectly that the tomb was empty by taking that bribe. The Jews knew that the tomb was empty by bribing the guard. We also have an explanation of the empty tomb that the women went to the wrong tomb. You guys ever hear that one before? Oh, well, the, the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, it's interesting, first off, that women were the first witnesses here. If you're going to invent a story in that time and culture, you would not make women any type of witnesses. Let me explain. Hey, you guys, I know you've heard this before, but I'm going to give you some quotes from the Talmud and the Jewish law so you can understand how sexist this culture was back then. Women were not allowed to be legal witnesses at all. In the Talmud, which is the Jewish law, it says this, quote, let the words of the law be burnt rather than delivered to women. That's how much they, they venerated the, the word of women witnesses. In the works of Joseph, Josephus, um, in his Antiquities, he says this, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Huh, what does that mean? It means they're women, they're emotional, they're crazy, can't trust them, right? So this, this is how they viewed the testimony of women at the time. So why is it that you would have the very first witnesses being women to the resurrected Christ? Why would you record that? I wouldn't, would you? Especially in, in the first century? No way. The point here is glaringly obvious. In that culture and at that time, there was no way women were allowed to be witnesses of any sort. Yet in the New Testament, it shows that women were the first witnesses. Seriously, if you wanted to discredit the story of Christ, that's how you should write it, by having women as witnesses. That would discredit it. But the gospel writers did that, right? You can see in Luke 24, 11, the disciples would not believe the women, remember, until they had seen the risen Jesus for themselves. So even they held on to this, this cultural idea that women were unworthy or um, untrustworthy in their witness accounts. So I said earlier that the explanation that the women went to the wrong tomb, well, that one just falls apart in and of itself. Then go to the right one, <laughs> right? I, I think that was a, one of the most silliest arguments I've heard. All oh, the women went to the wrong tomb, okay? Then go to the right one and point out the body. But you didn't do that. So that one doesn't work. The other one that we've heard is that the Jews or the Romans stole the body. Um, <laughs> remember what I just read? The Jews bribed the Romans to say that they had fallen asleep. And even if... The, the Jews or the Romans stole the body, produced the body. Done. Christianity squelched, dead. Your, your insurrection is, is completely over with. Just produce the body. The rise of Christianity would have been squashed in an instant if they could have produced that body. But trust me, if they could have produced that body, they would have. Christians were a big, big problem for the Roman Empire and for the, the Jewish elite. They did not even claim that they had taken the body. 
Another theory, crazy one, um, this one wasn't even raised until about the 19th century, that's the 1800s, middle to late 1800s, is the swoon theory. You guys ever hear of this one? No? Basically, he just fainted, yeah, and then, and then walked, walked out of the tomb here. So there's a book, uh, I don't know, it's about 30 years old now, um, called The Passover Plot, and it, it maintains this kind of scenario. So let's, let's look at this one, and this one seems probably the most unlikely out of all of the explanations to explain away the resurrection. So has anyone seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel, Mel Gibson's movie? Okay, very, very graphic, very, very brutal, but very much so the most accurate depiction of the beating that Jesus received and also of the crucifixion. I, it's, it's rough to watch, I'm not going to lie there, but if you haven't, I recommend you do because then you'll understand exactly what he went through as a man and you get this idea. So it really is crazy to think that a man that went through that and then lied in a tomb, a cold, dank rock tomb for three days, rolled a multi-ton stone away from the inside, by the way. I don't know how that one was possible when it was rolled from the outside. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> he was wrapped in about 100 pounds of spices and grave clothes, John tells us. I mean, you, you know, I can't imagine Christ was there with a pocket knife or something to cut himself out of that. And he tore through those. He overcome that SEAL team of Romans that we talked about, walked miles on recently crucified ankles, and don't forget, he was stabbed through his side, pierced with a spear, and then he appears to thousands as if nothing had happened, and he's healthy as can be. Come on. That one is just really ludicrous. Even when I was an atheist and I heard that one, I'm like, okay, that's just, that's stupid. That one's really dumb. That's nuts. That one doesn't even come close to, to making sense. That one, I think, is one of the most desperate ploys to explain away the resurrection. I, I really do. It's also interesting to note that you have an enemy witness to the resurrected Christ. It's one thing for people who have a propensity to believe the gospel to be witnesses of his appearances, and it's quite another when you have an enemy of the gospel to see the resurrected Christ. Who am I talking about? Saul. Okay? And Saul's persecution of Christ was recorded in extra-biblical sources as well, not just the canon of Scripture. So we have Saul who became Paul, and he persecuted the church. He was at the stoning of Stephen. He held the cloaks of the people that were throwing the rocks to kill Stephen. He was on his way to Damascus to kill even more Christians there. In fact, uh, he was a skeptic that was converted by the risen Jesus is actually quite something. Not only just a skeptic, but an actual enemy of the risen Christ. James was a believer because of Jesus' appearance to him. James as in Jesus' half-brother, right? Josephus claims about James that he later died a martyr and he was stoned to death. That's interesting. Another rival claim is that these were all hallucinations. You guys hear that one yet? Okay, mass hallucinations. Well, let's talk about that. And yes, I'm aware of mass hallucinations where people, you know, take all the same drug and stuff. Yes, I've, I've read the historical accounts of, of things like that happening. However, this is odd for so many people at so many different times and at so many different places who experience the risen Jesus to share in the very same hallucination. You can't join somebody else on a hallucination. You're going to have your own, and they're going to have their own. Okay, I mentioned um, SEAL teams a lot, and I, I once read an account of uh, a SEAL training class, and they have a time during their training program known as Hell Week. I mean, I think all of SEAL training is hell, but imagine what Hell Week to SEALs must be like. 
So what were their, and they began to hallucinate, these men at this time, during, during Hell Week. One saw an octopus waving at him. Another saw a train coming across the water. One saw a literal wall of water that the raft was going to crush into. The point is, none of the others had the same hallucination. They all had different ones. Yes, they all hallucinated because of just the extreme you know, brutality of what these guys were going through. They were pushed beyond the brink. And they all hallucinated, but they all had different ones. That's my point. Then we have the transformation of the disciples. I think this one's a huge, huge witness and testimony to, to the case for the resurrection. What changed them? From fearful men hiding in the upper room to bold world changers willing to die for the gospel. See, these were people that turned the world upside down during their time. What changed them to these courageous people? They all fled the scene of Jesus' arrest. Remember that? Everyone left. I would claim that it was an experience of the risen Christ. I don't know anyone who would go to torture and death for what they know to be a lie. That doesn't make any sense. Many transformations happened. For example, the Sabbath was given up on Saturday and moved to Sunday. Why? Well, Sunday was the Lord's day. It was the day that the resurrection of Christ happened. So the Jewish believers forsook their normal day of Sabbath, Saturday, to meet on the Lord's day. So no more sacrifices either were given at the temple. Well, why? Because Christ had been the one sacrifice for all. Now, these were hardcore devout Jews that abandoned their Sabbath day, their day of meeting, abandoned their way of atoning to God by sacrificing animals in the temple, the ones who came to Christ. Yes, that's, that's significant, okay? That's very significant. So what are the implications of the resurrection for our lives? Well, with respect to the past, we see in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was raised for our justification. Well, what does that mean? It means that Jesus' death on the cross, if that's all it would, be viewed as a defeat rather than a victory. If that's it, if he had just died on the cross and that's it, that's a massive defeat. But that's not it. The great sign that proves Jesus' death was actually a victory over sin and death is the resurrection. So what about implications for the present? Romans 8.11 says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. That's huge. If you're a believer, you have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead living and dwelling inside of you. Well, that means what? That means we have the power to overcome temptations. We have the authority to go before the creator of the universe in his throne room and petition him. This is a, an amazing, just kind of mind-blown revelation here. See, that word in that um, verse used to describe power, it's the Greek word dunamos. Anyone guess what English word comes from that? Dynamite. Yeah. And that is just, it shows the immense power that we have the spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwelling inside of us. What about implications for the future with regards to the resurrection? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It talks about our resurrection. We are to be steadfast, immovable in the storms of life. Steadfast in the face of the waves that are massive and at times trying to crush us. We need always to be energetic, willing to go out and serve. If Christ is not raised, then our entire lives, not just our faith, are in vain. Everything about it is completely in vain. It means that even the smallest thing that we do in the name of the Lord is not in vain. Even the cup of cold water you give to somebody while serving is remembered by the Lord. That's cool, right? Because do you guys ever struggle with that along with me that, ah, what am I doing for the kingdom? I mean, how am I, how am I serving God, right? Every little action you do right now counts forever. Remember that. That's because there's going to be a life after death. 
Our lives are going to go on forever as believers in fellowship with Christ. The resurrection, if it's true, and I believe that it is, is of infinite importance. If it's not true, it's of no importance. But the one thing it can't be is of moderate importance. Any questions? We've proved it. When an atheist, because I never used to be one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you think there was no such thing as Jesus? Yeah, and there are some out on the lunatic fringe, as I was, that even de deny the um, actual person of Christ existed. And that one's just easy to deal with. It, it, it really is. I mean, you just show them any history book. Uh, I mean, you don't have to go through scripture. You don't have to go through religion. Any history book shows that the person of Jesus... Well, not school history books. No, not school history books, but I mean... What history books would say that? Antiquities by Josephus, for one. Um, calendar. Yeah, the calendar. <laughs> I know, our entire calendar is based... It's wrong. We're about four to six years off, but regardless... But yes, it is based on the life of this person named Jesus. Yeah, Bronze, you had a question. Uh, I was going to say, I heard uh, years ago, and I, there was a reference for it that uh, was presented, but I don't recall what it was, uh, or a source for it, um, but I heard that even secular uh, historians acknowledge, at least some of them, that the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are some of the most uh, uh, historically provable facts in history. Like, even, even the resurrection of him is, is historically recognized by secular Oh, yeah. No, they, they absolutely are. Like I, and I quoted um, John Dominic Crossan from the Jesus Seminar when he said that he, talking about Christ, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can be. Right. I mean, right there, one of the greatest skeptics of the resurrection just said that Christ being crucified is as historical as, you know, Abraham Lincoln being shot in the theater. Right? You can't deny it. And to deny it, it's just... It's that you're actively running away like I was. I mean, you're, you're trying at that point. You really are trying to not believe. Like, like you are volitionally, you know, your faith to not believe is greater than just repenting at so that point. So when somebody asked you, well, what about Jesus? Uh-huh. What would you respond? Oh, it was some nonsensical answer. <laughs> um, I used to lie. I used to, get, I used to give the, the garbage answers. Oh, I've read the Bible from cover to cover. It's crap. You know, all of that. No, I hadn't. If I had read the scriptures, I would have been changed, right? <laughs> Obviously. I mean, once I did, I, I was changed. <laughs> you know, so I would just lie. And a lot of times, atheists, when they're giving you these nonsensical answers, they're lying. They really are about, you know, what they've read or, or, or whatnot. Or they'll just go to the, the, the experience arguments, which don't mean anything. What do I mean by the experience arguments? Well, they're going to name... And we're going to go back to previous talks, right? Then they're going to name, oh, you know, my great-grandma who was such a good person, and this happened to her, this bad thing. How can God exist, right? And, and it just comes to the experience, and it, it leaves facts behind. The only time that you'll have those consistent logical arguments is probably if you're only dealing, like, with a college professor. Um, it, it's going to be very rare to deal with that, with the, the laity person, and they're just going to bring up random stuff. And that's why I love um, when we had Alan Schlemmen come, the, uh, the Colombo method. You know, you just ask them how they got to, to their ideas. And then once they start to kind of spout, I think it would have been hilarious if somebody had done this to me, it, you know, to just spout my own nonsense. I would have been like, wow, I really am crazy. 
You know, <laughs> you know, you you would realize it pretty quick that your arguments are just they're com yeah they're circular, they're unfounded. It doesn't make any sense at all. I wonder what the professor taught at Moody, Moody Bible College who denounced Christ. How he's rationalizing that. How does somebody who has tasted and seen yeah. walk away? Yeah, the, Exactly. I like your point, Bonnie. But did he really taste? Exactly. See, James says that. That the people, you know, that if it were possible for them to fall away, then James says that they were never really saved to begin with. They, they had a religious experience. Or in this guy's case, he just made it into a career. And that's the dangerous part um, with our society and especially with Bible colleges. And I went to Cal Baptist and I went to Talbot School of Theology, both pretty darn conservative um, colleges. However, the school as a whole did not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. Both schools. You would have professors in there that were super conservative that held that this was the infallible Word of God. But then you had the, the idea from the, the textual criticism that, oh, yeah, you know, we, we do the best we can. It's not really the Word of God. And some of it's okay and accurate. Some of it's not. Well, how do you decide? What, the parts that bother you or not? Mark Twain. You guys all know Mark Twain, right? One of my favorite authors. I love one of his quotes dealing with Scripture. He says, you know, the parts of the Bible um, that I... Uh, let me back up. He says, there is much about the Bible... Um, that I read and, and I can't understand, and that really doesn't bother me. Um, the parts that I do understand, those those bother me the most, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, you got to love Mark Twain. But that's the whole idea, and that's where it falls apart, is when we have this that we don't hold true. He wasn't. No, he wasn't. Nope. Never? N not, I don't know. I don't know if he did or not. We'll have to take a look that one up. But But the whole idea that the foundation comes from... Again, I'm biased because of you know, my schooling in apologetics and creation science, but I think the foundational verse is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. That's it, right? Not only created, but also created the scriptures. So that's where we, we have to have our foundation, is that the, the Bible is indeed the word of God. All of it. All of it. Absolutely. Not just the parts that you don't like. Sorry. You don't have that option. You have, well, you have the option to change your life to meet, uh, match the scriptures, but that's about it. And this idea, not idea, but this historical fact about the resurrection, really when you look at the, the, uh, the way that they've tried to dance around it or to disprove it, it really falls apart pretty doggone easily. It does. The resurrection is, is one of the most historically documented things. And that's, like I said, that's where we differ at the, at the beginning, and you know. And more provable than his birth. I mean, we can't really prove, that sounds horrible, that Mary You're, was a virgin. That's true. You know? That's true, as far as using extra-biblical sources. Right, right. Yeah. And the funny thing is, um, when you take a look at, you know, the time of Passover, all these things, dates that were documented, we know the exact Sunday that Christ walked out of that tomb was April 7th. It was April 7th. Why doesn't anybody ever say that? <laughs> <laughs> so, because uh, we can see when Passover was. I mean, all this stuff is. The Jewish calendar, but it's a lunar calendar. It's 28 days. Right, and I can't remember what April's called. I don't know. But yeah, it, it, was, it was April, April 7th of um, AD 33, right? Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting, and that is one of the most historically accurate 
things that we have is the resurrection. It's really cool. Any other questions? You mentioned before that I haven't read through the whole scripture, but if I had, it would have changed me. Yeah. I don't think that reading it changes a person if the Holy Spirit hasn't convicted their heart. You're right. Because I, my best example is my daughter-in-law, Gia, because she had read the scriptures as a non-believer because of a history class that she had read, been in the Word and read it didn't phase her one bit mm-hmm. until Jesus got a hold of her. Yeah. She didn't she didn't see Jesus, she didn't know him, she didn't you know, it made no difference. Yeah. It'd right. be like reading a textbook. It was a textbook, that's yeah. all it was. Yeah. No, absolutely. Thanks for pointing that out. You're you're right. I mean, these, these people, these atheists that debate mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yes. They read it. Oh yeah, they do. They have to believe it, right? No. Yeah, and, and you're right. Because the scales haven't been brought down right. yeah. from their eyes. Yeah. I mean, Mormons know the word of God, and they still believe what they believe. And Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. Right. And, and Satan. Satan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we're reminded of another verse that, you know, yeah. in, in James, you believe that there's one God, you, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Yeah, yeah you know, so it's it's important that... It is entirely up to the grace of Christ to just rip those veils from our eyes so we can have understanding. Yeah, that's right. Uh, seeing that movie, that star of Bethlehem, uh-huh. I mean, I never knew what was going on the day Mary found out she conceived that, or the, the moment Christ died on the cross. You should see what happened in the sky. I just was blown away. I've watched it probably five times, <laughs> and I need to watch it more. It's amazing. When, when you think God is controlling everything, and at right when Christ died, they just take it back, and then they said, this is exactly what the sky was at 3 o'clock when he died. Right. They had a blood moon and the black and the earthquake. And it's like, it, it was amazing. And when she conceived, or you know, all the different events, what was going on in our skies that we didn't know. Right. And that's helpful for every part of what we do. To know that he really is in control of every single thing and for us to doubt. I know and I to be scared like, and to worry and to, you know, everything. I know all these so years I've like been a Christian and then to see what God was doing in the universe. It's like it just really blew me away. Just like, oh. and you know it hit me this year, uh, and I think it was a meme or something, but it hit me. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John identified Jesus within right. the womb. And mm-hmm. on the left. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. Like that is amazing. I mean, the Holy Spirit isn't spoken much of no. up until Jesus Pentecost. Ascended, right. Uh-huh. But Mary was, or Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John identified Jesus. Yeah. And leapt within Elizabeth's womb. Yeah. And just. It's like the more you know, the more you believe. It's like, oh. And and then you just think about the sovereignty of God. Like, I was was kind of not spacing, but when Ben was talking this morning in Matthew 4, and you see that phrase in the New Testament a lot, so that the according to the prophecies or that sort of that the prophet might be fulfilled, right? Yeah. Well, think about that statement. Well, which is it? We have this idea that, you know, in, in our mind, a prophecy being fulfilled is like someone makes this prophecy and then years later it happens to come true and yay, it correlates great. Kind of like the, what's the, Nostradamus, like that dude, right? You know? Yep. 
But it's not that way. It's happening at the same time in God's timeline, right? The event is happening over here, like on your right-hand side, if God's looking at whatever. He's having this event happen, and the prophet is writing it at the same time, right? You know, it's, it's yeah, because they're both happening congruently. It's not like one, and then you hope for the, the event to actually happen. And just kind of... No, it's not like one happens. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> How do you know? Uh, because God's sovereign? No. How do you know it's happening at the same time? Because there is no time for God, you know? I mean, that, that's where our confusion comes yeah. from, yeah. you know, is, is being in time. And, and I've, I've explained to my kids before, like last night we were at the Light Attractor Parade, right? And God's view of time. So here we are, we're sitting in front of Oli Club, you know, raining and cold, but it was still fun. <laughs> And we're watching the, the sequence of, of, of the parade go by. No, not then. I'm talking about later, or earlier on. And we're watching the sequence of, of the parade go by, right? And we can see as the tractors and the floats and different things come by. Now, imagine if for some reason Como 4 like, wanted to televise our lighted tractor parade, and they're up there in a chopper. Because of their vantage point, they can still see the sequence of the parade going by, but they can also see the beginning and the end of the parade at the exact same time, right? That's God's view of time. Where we're stuck, we can only see the sequence. God is light, and E equals MC squared. Right. You're talking about the speed? When you, when you are light, like God is light, time has no meaning. No, not at all. I know. So what Bonnie's talking about, the, the measurement of time is directly correlated to the speed of light, right? That's how we measure time. Um, and to have God being described as light or the progenitor, the originator of light, right? You know, God made the, the light in Genesis. Yeah, it is amazing to think about that even time is because of him. It's, yeah, it's, it'll blow your mind. But so badly to have it be that we get to see it and we get to right. hold it and put it in. Show me now. I want to know this is going to happen, but we don't get to do it. No, we don't. And then when you think about it, I mean, honestly, if every aspect of God can fit into this, you know, 30-pound cranium on, on top of my neck here, what am I going to... Why why would I worship him? Yeah. Give him a head, lazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's pray, guys, and then we're, we'll get on out of here. Father, God, we thank you so much for uh, just the glory of, of the resurrection, that our faith is founded on something true, Lord, um, and that our hope is in you and nothing that we can conjure up or, or nothing of our concocture. We just ask that as we go about our week and about this season that you would give us those opportunities to share the gospel uh, with those who, who are not yet believers. And, and that you would give us the words. God, you, you just told us the spirit that raised your son from the grave is the same spirit that you've given to dwell in us. So we know we can preach your gospel with a lot of authority and truth. But let us also season it with grace and love. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Our God is an